It was exciting to go out in the streets with a movie camera, right? With the tear gas going off and the mm-hmm. National Guard invading New Haven, and you know, ten thousand demonstrators, and all that stuff was extremely intoxicating. My name is West Gibbons, and welcome back to the Tungsten Originals podcast. You just heard part of my conversation with filmmaker Joshua Morton. We discussed the documentaries he made for the Black Panthers in the late 60s, the film he made in Guatemala, and that one time he dropped one of four 65mm cameras in the world on the set of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 29 of the Tungsten Originals podcast. Professor Morton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing, sir? Never better for being here with you today, Wes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is this your first time doing a podcast? Yep. Wow. Well, welcome to the world of podcasting. Um, you are a professor here at SCAD, a film professor to be specific, and you have an extensive list of credits of working in Hollywood and things like that. And before we talk about that, I want to talk about how you got in the film industry in general and like what your story was growing up and how you even made the move to work in the industry professionally. Well, my mom was a Super 8 fanatic, took okay. a lot of home movies. Mm-hmm. So I broke in with her Super 8 camera, mm-hmm. a Nizo S8, really beautiful little German camera. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went to um, architecture school in New Haven at Yale. Okay. I was living in the Hill District, which was the black district of New Haven. Mm-hmm. With five other students, we rented a house for like three fifty a month. <laughs> wow! And that's why we were there. Yeah, I toured the an apartment earlier today, and it was not three fifty a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so we were living there, and we were part of the neighborhood. And this is in nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. Okay. And it was the time of great revolutionary activity. Mm-hmm. A very big year. Big year. This is We're actually recording this a day after the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11. That's right. So That's right. A lot of things happened that year. So we, um, our neighbors were black. Um, we were watching what was going on in the neighborhood. The New Haven chapter of the Black Panther Party was one half block from our house. Oh, wow. And we could see them getting harassed by the local police. And one fine afternoon, I was sitting with my friend David Lippman in the living room, and I said, you know, we should, we should be doing something for the Panthers. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, just walk out the front door, take a right, walk half a block, go up the stoop, knock on the door, and ask him what you can do. So he called me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got up from the couch and did just that. Mm-hmm. Knocked on the door. A young black woman with a really impressive afro came to the door. And she, a very late 60s afro. <laughs> the real deal. She looked me up and down, this white au fait dude, and said, can I help you? And I said, well, I'm a neighbor. I have a van. Uh, I'd like to help you guys out if I can, if you can use me for that. I don't have classes before 9 o'clock. Anyway, I'm offering my services because mm-hmm. I'm a neighbor and I've seen what's been going on here. She said, wait here. Closed the door in my face. And 10 minutes later, came back down and said, if you want to, you can drive for our Breakfast for Children program. Uh, you got to get up early in the morning, pick kids up in the neighborhood, 
take them to a local church basement, help feed them breakfast, and take them to school. And so I did. Mm -hmm. All that winter uh, into the spring, I showed up for the New Haven chapter of the Black Panther Party Children for Breakfast program. They used to call it actually a Breakfast for Children program. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, they didn't really know who I was, but I couldn't do any harm in that role. So we got to know each other. I showed up. They appreciate people showing up. And uh, one day, uh, their security person, whose name was Big Man, appropriately so, he was a very big man. There you go. Came up to me and said, hey, Josh, he said, I bet, I bet you know about movies and stuff like that because you're going to architecture school and all. And I said, sure. And uh, he handed me a, uh, a Bolex H16 movie camera. And he said, well, we'd like you to make movies about what we do in the community because that's really what we're about. We're not all about black guys in black jackets with black berets and automatic weapons. Mm -hmm. We're about being of service to the community. And I said, I can do that. So he handed me the camera and said, okay, you are our media minister. <laughs> Go out and make movies. Wow. And they were my first client. Wow. That's got to be the most incre incredible first client of anyone. They were, they were amazing. They were really good people. Yeah. Uh, they worked very hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I loaded it up with uh, Tri-X black and white reversal film. Mm -hmm. There were a handful of students at Yale who were making movies. I got some direction from them on 16 millimeter documentary filmmaking. And I went out one bright, cold morning in the middle of winter and made my first documentary, which was called Breakfast. <laughs> wow. And it, and was, it was just you doing this. Well, it was me, and I also had a friend from whom I was living with, Peter Ewell, okay. who was the dry acted as me, as the driver. Oh, oh right, right. So um, we made, we, I made this movie, black and white, uh, without sound, and basically strung it together and took it to the Yale Film Society, and they showed it at their screenings before the movie as a trailer. Because at that time, in the student population, there was huge support for the Black Panther Party. Okay. And uh, after they screened it, the Panthers showed up in full regalia and walked through the crowd passing the hat. And I must say, the Ailes gave generously. Mm -hmm. So that was my first paying audience. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, wow. And, uh, and the Panthers appreciated that. Mm -hmm. They did. It, was, it just worked out really well that way. So after that... I did a, um, I did a movie called uh, Charles Gary Interview. Bobby Seale was on trial in New Haven for the murder of Alex Rackley, uh, who was a federal plant and whom another fed, who was an agent provocateur, kept telling the Panthers that they had to kill this guy. And eventually he did get killed, but Bobby Seale had nothing to do with it. Okay. But they wanted I've never Bobby's. heard of this story. Oh, nobody has. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Bobby C. was put on trial, and uh, because I was involved with the Panthers, they said, we want you to do an interview with Charles Gary mm -hmm. and do the same thing. And so right. I interviewed Charles Gary, and he talked about the trial and the unfairness of it, so on and so forth. And same thing. That was my first sync sound film. Wow. Okay. And, uh, and was that the second time that you worked with the Black Panthers? Was that like immediately after the breakfast documentary? 
it was a little while. Okay. You know, they had we had they had to you know assess the value of it. Right. The film, the first film, right. and then you know this came up, but they really wanted Charles Gary to to talk about what was going on. Mm-hmm. So they said, "Will you do this?" And I said, "Sure." Mm-hmm. So I took an old uh, sixteen millimeter Airy BL and set it up in a room at Yale and and interviewed him, hmm. and did the same thing. And uh, the Panthers liked it. Uh, the audience liked it. They gave. So that was my second movie. And then I became involved in a longer film. Uh, there was a May Day demonstration in New Haven that spring. 15,000 people came to New Haven. Kingman Brewster, who was the president of Yale, was nervous because Harvard, which tried to close itself off from demonstrations, got trashed. Oh, wow. He didn't want that to happen to, to, uh, to Yale, so mm-hmm. he said, I'm going to open up the courtyards of the colleges and we're going to feed the demonstrators. Oh, okay. Like welcome them in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be there, host them. Right. And it was very scary. Yeah. Uh, and what he wanted us to do, he knew we were making movies mm-hmm. with the Panthers and around other political topics. So he said, um, look, I want you all to go in, use the Yale equipment, go in and document this. Because mm-hmm. I know you were the only ones who can get close to this whole scene. Right. If I send in the usual Yale reports people, a bunch of Canadian broadcasting <laughs> corporation, older guys, right. they're not going right. to get anywhere near this thing. So we did, but what we also did was co-opt it. In okay. other words, we took the, the equipment and the film mm-hmm. and made our movie, which was a very gritty documentary about the May Day demonstrations of May 1970 in New Haven. And it showed what really happened. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we did show because it was important mm-hmm. that Kingman Brewster opened Yale up right. and fed the demonstrators. Mm-hmm. We didn't just completely co-opt it and rule out what he had done. That was right. important. But that, it turned out, was a bigger effort. Mm-hmm. And uh, a documentary filmmaker who had been really kind of the head of the Yale scene of us kind of disorderly filmmakers uh, directed it and was largely was the driving creative force. And I joined in with that. And we made this 20-minute film called Mayday, which uh, Kingman Brewster sent off to the alumni for, mm-hmm. for the Yale reports. And WGBH in Boston picked it up for a series they had called Flick Out. Because by now, this kind of movie making was getting to be... This is pretty early for this kind of movie making. Right. And this stuff, the Panthers were catching on. You know, hip people were very pro-Panther. People wanted to know more. Mm-hmm. So they bought it, they paid mm-hmm. a licensing fee and put it on WGBH, which is the flagship PBS, PBS station, right? So now we had a little more money and I continued making films for the Panthers. I made one more, which was called Puppet Show. They put on a puppet show in the New Haven chapter of the Black Panther Party in the basement for the neighborhood kids. They built the puppets, they wrote the script, they built the stage, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want you to come in and film it. And I said, sure. So we went in and filmed it. and. That was a very, very rough, raw, angry puppet show. <laughs> I've never heard a puppet show described as that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Punch and Judy had, had right. those elements. But yeah. this was this took Punch and Judy to a whole other level. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty striking document of the time. It never went anywhere, but I mean, except for the for the Panthers. And again, mm-hmm. it was screened around Yale and they raised money with it and I, they sent it off to Oakland. But what were you going to do with a movie like this, really? Because right. it was a limited distribution, but it was made. And that's why they call the, a lot of these films, they call orphan films. Now, mm-hmm. there's a whole 
orphan film movement, films that a group of people got together to make for a specific purpose, and then they disappear. But they're cultural artifacts, mm -hmm. and a lot of them ended up in a dumpster. Right. Uh, I held on to the negatives of the movies that we made, mm -hmm. which was a good thing, because um, the Yale Film Archive knocked on the door and said, hey, Nick Dube says that you have negatives for these <laughs> movies. Um, would you be willing to donate the negatives to the Yale Film Studies Center? And I said, sure. Yeah. So this is just a couple years ago. Oh, wow. They just found you. Yeah. Wow. So I did. Mm -hmm. And now all the movies have been restored and digitized mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And, you know, they've got a whole new life. Right. Uh, and, and Brian Meacham, who's the head of the Film Studies Center, has been promoting okay. these movies. Good. They've been going out to various, uh, you know, black studies. Mm -hmm. um, and last, well, last month, uh, I went to Vienna to mm -hmm. a symposium called the Orphan Film Symposium mm -hmm. Radicals about radical filmmaking and presented Puppet Show Oh, that, okay. You got to present your own. I got to present film. puppet wow. show. Yeah, and also deliver a narrative much like the one I'm giving you mm -hmm. about how I got. Right. And people were really, you know, they they really liked the story. They liked mm -hmm. the narrative about because it represents the way a lot of people got into filmmaking mm -hmm. in the day, because at that time filmmaking was considered an agent for social change. Right. People were picking up cameras mm -hmm. and making movies about what was going on. And there's a lot of that out there mm. still that hasn't Absolutely. been touched. Yeah. Because as you know, today, historically, that entire 1960s, early 70s political era has largely been buried. Nobody studies it. Nobody knows about the war in Vietnam, mm -hmm. the resistance movement, the Black Panthers. You talk to kids today, millennial students, nothing. Right. They, know, they just don't know anything. Right. So there's a bit of a movement afoot to A, preserve these artifacts, mm -hmm. and B, broadcast them. Right, because it's important. I think so. Yeah, I'll, I'll remember, I grew up in Mississippi, as you know, and in, in Money, Mississippi is where um, Emmett Till was murdered, and which was a, a very large event in the civil rights movement. Um, a young black boy from Chicago coming down, visiting his family, and he was accused by this white woman of... of he was accused that he whistled at her and um, her husband and his friends beat and killed him. And then years later, recently, she admitted that it never happened. So, which is just terrible. And at the time, it was an all-white male jury, so they got acquitted and everything. But I was lucky to go to a school where, like, that was taught, you know, and we talked about the importance of it, um, especially it being our home state, a state that still deals with that stuff very actively, you know, like deals with... Um, socioeconomic inequality and things like that that are reminiscent of the civil rights movement. And I, I'm always surprised when I meet, meet people that don't know about the Emmett Till story because that is that's just such an such a important story from that that time, you know, and it, I don't know. It's just, and of course, there, there are obviously stories that I don't know, like the story that you were just telling me about, but um, it is crazy how little information that that can be found sometimes, you know. Well, it's not of interest. Mm-hmm. It's not of interest to the current political culture. Right. It's... They just as soon not deal with that. Right. And I think that what goes around comes around, and I'm glad that they are preserving these films and mm -hmm. screening them because 
The pendulum swings. Right. Uh, I do believe that there will be a swing, I hope, toward a more progressive open society with yeah. better education and all that stuff. My I, father I, describes it as a pendulum, and I think y'all are both correct about that. At least I hope. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Yeah. So whenever you were making those documentaries with the Black Panthers, did you do any research like how to make a documentary or like how are you basing on what to film and what to capture? Well, I had a very specific story, narrative right. that I was telling in all right. these. The great thing about documentary is that it's ideally suited. I got up in mm -hmm. the morning, got out of the van, went up and picked up the first kid, got in the van, looked at the kids in the back of the van goofing around showed up at the church, got out, you know, mm -hmm. that's the great thing about documentary is that it's a narrative. Right. But I had done a little bit of work with my mom's camera mm -hmm. telling stories. And if you have a sense of how events unfold, then you can, you can just kind of do it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it wasn't great. You look at this movie, it, <laughs> it's rough, but... <laughs> But it was it was a start, and right. and in its own rough, you know, kind of brutalist way, mm -hmm. it really tells a story. I mean, you get it, right? You get exactly what's going on there, and that's the point, isn't it? And and in a way, my lack of experience and my very rough style mm -hmm. entirely suited the subject, right? And I think documentaries can kind of benefit from that that they that the audience, I guess, like gives the quote unquote roughness like a pass because it is real, you know, like you're you're shooting it on the fly and stuff. And I think that can totally add to the style of it. Today, particularly, I mean, what everybody is, has access to tools that make people's home movies incredibly slick. Right. And I also think that people, part of the reason that students are so enamored with motion picture film is that it represents a whole style and methodology of filmmaking, which is totally non-digital and is hands-on. And you don't just go ahead and, you know, point the camera and then bring it into post-production and then manipulate it and come out with this certain sameness of look that digital media have, particularly among student films. I think it would be great. I guess one of the reasons that uh, now that we're doing Lomo Kino, Lomo Kino, I started out hating Lomo Kino. Yeah. But I'm warming up to, to Lomo Kino because mm -hmm. it's it, it basically speaks to my own experience because right. I was just like what I was doing was not far off from Lomo Kino mm -hmm. with that non-reflex Bolex 16 millimeter camera. Now, obviously it was a much better camera and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. but the roughness of the style and execution were very much the same. So mm -hmm. it's not a bad, not a bad exercise to get people yeah. out, out from under the slick mm -hmm. digital media and into a very raw filmmaking experience. Definitely. So, how soon did you decide in that period after making those documentaries, how soon after did you decide that you were going to make a career out of filmmaking and not go the architecture route? I did architecture school because I didn't know what else to do. I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief. <laughs> Forgive me. I didn't want to be any of the traditional professions. On the other hand, I didn't have the nerve or the talent to be a fine artist. So I said, well, architecture certainly has an element of art, but you can make a living at it. And I kind of drifted as an architecture student until I picked up the camera and then I said, oh yeah, yeah, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. Was it because you saw the how film could be a source for social change? More so than architecture in the day. Right. Architecture in the 70s was 
pitiful <laughs> as far as social consciousness is concerned. Right, right. And I saw a more direct way to contribute to social change using the movie camera mm -hmm. than I ever could have using a drafting pen. And that's just me. Right, right. Of course, it varies person to person. Yeah. But when you were growing up, messing with your mom's camera was like, was social change something that was on your radar or was working with the Black Panthers the first time that that really became something that you were like paying attention to, I guess? Uh, social change came with the war in Vietnam to me. Yes, sir. Because I was facing the draft. Oh, right. And I became a part of the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm. And living in the Hill District, I also became a part of the movement to liberate and defend black people in the community. And it all went together. Right. And it was irresistible. I mean, it was the only thing that a certain type of person with a certain type of consciousness and youth and a sense of idealism could do. You couldn't do anything else. And so I did. And at the same time, I got to do all the things that I'd like to do anyway, which is make mm -hmm. movies and, you know, be involved in creative expression, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And it was exciting mm -hmm. to go out in the streets with a movie camera, right. with the tear gas going off and the mm -hmm. National Guard invading New Haven and, you know, 10,000 demonstrators and all that stuff was extremely intoxicating. What do you see as current movements that could benefit from more of that style of documentary filmmaking? It's really different. I think that uh, the first thing that I saw that attracted my attention was the Occupy movement, and that turned out to be a bust. <laughs> the thing is that what made the movement in the 60s so exciting and so deep was that it responded to my generation's uh, sense of change, of liberation. I'm talking sex, drugs, rock and roll, politics. Uh, it's very hard to find that today. Uh, and people rightfully, people rightfully would like to have been a part of that because mm -hmm. it, was, it was amazing. Now, I think that people have the opportunity to make perhaps more, uh, more thoughtful, more politically correct, if you will, and I use that advisedly, films about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot going on right now that right. needs to be documented, right. and is, by the way. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really good filmmaking being done right now. I see in my classes, I see people, LGBTQ people, picking up the camera and making good movies about that which comes directly from their experience, and that's, right. that's the key, is the connection between the filmmaker and the politics, in the sense that the reason I started was because I was up against the draft. I was living in the black community. This was all very direct experience that I was expressing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go digging for it. Right. So anybody who is threatened in any way, directly, by what's going on, I think, has the opportunity to express that and to find like-minded individuals who want to express it and document it and share it with others. I mm -hmm. think it's an incredibly powerful way of moving forward. Mm -hmm. What are some of, the, some of your recent favorite documentaries? I think incredible documentaries came out of 
uh, the Arab Spring. The square is unbelievable. That's that is that reminds me more of any more than anything else of what was going on in the '60s. Mm-hmm. People picking up their DSLRs, picking up their phones, going out in the street, documenting what was going on, and then having a, a an extremely hidden production, which moved from apartment to apartment, where they gathered the materials and then uploaded them right past the government censors to the world. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. Uh, I love that movie. What part do you think the internet plays in modern day filmmaking? Everything. Everything. Unfortunately, most of what goes up on the internet is garbage. But <laughs> right. But and a lot of it is a lot of it is just lies, but if you can sort through it, there's some real jewels on the internet. Mm-hmm. At the bottom of the barrel, you'll come up with something and it will blow you away. I, by the way, I don't spend a lot of time uh, looking through YouTube. Yeah. I tend to look very carefully for movies that are out there because there are, there's enough, there are enough really well-made documentaries out there to look at which are informative and responsible so that I can spend my time looking at them. Mm-hmm. But then every once in a while when I'm going through YouTube, something will come up and there it is. Yeah. And it's quite compelling. Mm-hmm. I encourage people to go ahead and output what it is that's on their mind in any way possible because they've got this opportunity. For us to do this was incredibly difficult because of right. equipment and film and the mm-hmm. entire baggage of making motion picture and all that, which was great, but it meant that the amount of product was very limited compared to what it is now. Right. You can pick your phone up and you sit there, cut it on your phone and put it up on the internet in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing that and you really have something to say, then there's no excuse for it because it's right there in your hand. The most recent little documentary that I made was about Guatemala. And I did it with uh, an LG V30 Was that the one about coffee? Yeah. Okay. I heard about that one. Tell me about that documentary. Well, a friend of mine is the dean of coffee makers, of coffee brokers, and he's totally committed to it. And I love coffee. I didn't know there was such a thing as the dean of coffee brokers. Oh, George Howell. Yeah, no, (laughs) he is revered. And he also went to Yale with me okay. in the class of 1967. And he was also, um, he's been a friend for life. And I've been following him. And he and his partner, Juan Negrin, were working with the Huichol tribe in Mexico, in the central highlands of Mexico for mm. 30 years, trying to help them protect their land and develop their own means of using the natural resources that occur on the land mm-hmm. to promote their own culture and their own economy. That's basic. And, and to, prom- to promote their artists who make yarn paintings. So I had a deep background with George. And then he said, well, I'm going to Guatemala. And I said, I'm going with you. Uh, I'll shoot for food. Uh, you know, buy me the ticket. Uh, I'll bring along the, 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 uh, my cell phone mm-hmm. and, uh, and shoot, which I did. And I had a great time. And also discovered a story while I was there, which was the uh, volcanic eruption that occurred April a year ago, which was devastating. Mm. And no matter where you dig, you always come up with politics. And it turned out that a lot of the people who died, people who picked the coffee beans are Mayan. And European Guatemalans have been trying to wipe out Mayans for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. They can't do it. The Mayans are an incredibly tough culture, and they, they... are survivors. But every year they come down from the highlands 
the tough country, which is where they live because nobody mm-hmm. will go near them there. They harvest the coffee beans for cash, and then they go back up. And while they were there, the volcanic eruption occurred, which wiped out a lot of people, and it has never been properly reported. But we got to go right in the path of the volcano only like eight months afterward with the volcano still puffing in the background, right? right? And we were with a woman who lived there who knew a lot of the people who died, and she just all of a sudden stopped the car, and I turned the camera on her, and she just delivered this really beautiful short piece about about this disaster and how it affected people and how most of the people who died were Mayan people who were picking the coffee beans. And there it was. That was the real story right there. The rest of it was basically scenic documentary and right. industrial film about coffee picking and processing, which is all very fun, very nice and everything. But the real story was about the volcano. What, what was your method for finding that real story? Or did you just, did it kind of find it, you, for lack of a better phrase? It just happened. Right. It just happened in that car. I mean, I was cruising along, having a great time, being mm-hmm. a tourist, making a home movie, basically, mm-hmm. for George. And uh, all of a sudden, there we were, in the path of the volcano. And the woman who was driving the car just stopped and turned to me and said, this is where it happened. I said, well, what happened? This is where all these people were buried by the lava flow. And I looked out, and there were all these heavy equipment things basically trying to restore the area and open right. up the bridge and all. And it turned out that it was a scene of a great tragedy. And she teared up and started talking about it. And that's where the film happened, and that's the way movies, that's the way documentaries are. You're just cruising along, and all of a sudden they take off. Right. So I know you have a connection to Mississippi and that you made a documentary in Grenada, which is where the Afterglow Film Festival is, uh, which I've been to. How did you find that story? Tell me about that experience. My brother, my younger brother, was connected to the woman who basically was trying to develop uh, Granada in the same way that President Paula Wallace developed Savannah. Mm -hmm. And she wanted someone to document it and to do interviews and the like. And he, he asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. I said, sure. So I went there, and once again, you know Mississippi. I sure do. You spend 10 minutes in Mississippi, you know what's really going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't but, take long. And I didn't give them anything like what they expected. Right. I don't know what she was expecting exactly, but mm. I took the footage that I'd shot, and I did a lot of shooting down there. And I just said, look, uh, this is something... All this footage we shot, you're going to want to develop as a producer with an editor. I can't do this for you. You know, you know what you need. I, I shot a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. It all looks good. But in the meantime, I'm going to send along a little reel of stuff that I saw just to give you an idea of what we did and how it looks and stuff like that. And then I got to do what I love best, which is basically do a little montage of what I consider to be really nice-looking and meaningful footage of Granada. And that included going into the swamp going down to the high school, hearing a young man, a young black man, singing this beautiful, soulful ballad, going from there to the Redneck Cafe, where the old guys come down and drink coffee and biscuits in the morning. I've got one of those in my hometown. Of course you do. They have the best breakfast biscuits you ever had. Best damn biscuits you ever tasted. (laughs) And walked out in the field with... uh, the lady who was the producer's husband, who's a cotton grower. Okay. 
saw him in the middle of his cotton field Mm -hmm. and also went into the Baptist church on Sunday and Mm -hmm. photographed there. Very stirring experience. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that Martin Luther King had visited Oh wow! In the t- in the day, and then all of a sudden, there it was. There yeah. was, for me, what was the story, and that unfolded. And it also turns out that there was a great blues man who lived there in a shotgun shack. So mm-hmm. next thing I knew, I was in the shotgun shack right. neighborhood, rolling by shotgun shacks, and then I was in the stately home neighborhood, rolling by the stately homes for a little contrast, if you will, and so on. So that this little montage, if you were attentive, covered a lot of ground. Right. But not everybody would get that any more Mm -hmm. than people would particularly care about the people who were buried in a volcano. But that's the way way life is. And Mm -hmm. everything that happens, there's a story there that's meaningful. It also turned out that there was a Motown session musician there who had lived there all his life, had a career in Motown, and then returned there. And so we went out and visited with him, because my brother is a musician, and he played for us, and then we got some music that he had done recently, mm-hmm. and there was a whole story there. There were, In other words, it's amazing, if you dig a little, what, what you can find. There's a lot of stories in Mississippi. Everywhere. 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 If you If you're open to it, and if you allow the story to come to you, they're there. Right. That's what I. That's what I would say to documentarian. There's a, there's a story under every rock. You just got to look for it. That's actually good to hear because I was going to ask your advice because um, I have been for the past couple weeks. I got a really really cool opportunity to interview some documentarians for the podcast of a documentary that I think you would love called Wrestle um, a couple episodes ago and talking with them got me thinking about potentially doing a documentary for my senior film instead of like a regular narrative. Is that something you would advise? Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I say, no, I, um, that's what I did for my architecture school thesis. 50 years ago, right. was a documentary mm-hmm. about an unschool in New Haven mm-hmm. called, appropriately enough, The Unschool Film. Oh, yeah, make a doc. Yeah. Make a really good one. <laughs> yeah, that would be the goal for sure. <laughs> I'd want it to be probably about a Southern story just because of, you know, of course, being from Mississippi and all that comes with that. But um, I'll definitely seek your advice more. Since you any have so time, much experience with any it. Any time, any time. Just be open and, and keep your eyes and ears peeled. Mm, and the stories will come to you. So when did you wind up moving to L.A. and working there? Friends of mine were doing a documentary about forced drugging in mental institutions. This is mid-'70s now. They needed a sound guy and be camera. So I went out and we spent six weeks in the Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk near L.A. on a locked ward. With, wow. with a with an insane psychiatrist and the people in his charge. And at that time, if you wanted to, if there were a member in your family who was behaving badly, mm-hmm. more often than not meaning politically badly, they could put you on a 30-day hold, admit you, have you admitted into a psychiatric institution. Wow. And you would be put on a 30-day hold. And during that period, they would force you with Thorazine. 
And then at the end of the 30-day period, if you were behaving... Yeah, quote-unquote. Yeah, they'd cut you loose. So it was being used as a political tool. Right. And that's what the movie called Hurry Tomorrow was intending. Mm -hmm. It was straight-ahead verite documentary. And so there I was. And, I, and and there I was working on that feature documentary, which also was obviously political. Mm-hmm. And now I had gotten my first taste of Southern California. And I kept migrating back there. And I got a job doing news features for Newsweek Broadcasting Service. I'd been doing it as a freelancer to make money. And they offered me the job of producer cameraman in L.A. Okay. And that was a total plum. I mean, mm-hmm. it was ridiculous <laughs> because I was Newsweek. Now, right. Newsweek at the time was a big stinking deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you when you called people, they would return your calls, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though it was just me. And I got the chance to work with a, uh, with a producer, and she and I could do whatever we wanted. It was a two-person bureau mm-hmm. in L.A. So we just, we did music pieces. We would go to Santa Fe. We would go all over that part of the world just basically doing whatever we wanted to do. And I did that for a year and a half, and then basically I got bored. And I, you know, as long as I'm out here, I may as well get in the motion picture industry. So I applied to AFI, and because I'd been working and because I was a professional and because I had a reel to show, they accepted me. So I went to AFI. And so AF- that was like your first like formal film Absolutely. education. Okay. Oh yeah, the rest of you were asking how I, I was totally, you know, self-taught and working right. with a bunch of, you know, other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And it was all about, you know, exposure and shutter and <laughs> right. film speed and mm-hmm. turn the camera on. And I learned how to use a light meter. And I was using a, a CP16, which was a single system camera. Okay. Which recorded sound on film mm-hmm. on a strip. It was, uh, it was single perf and... The non-perf side was magnetic, and it went over a magnetic head in the camera and recorded sound on film. And it was reversal, and you had to be spot on. Thank God for digital. <laughs> well, I, I, I got so used to that that I, start, I started going out without a light meter. I mean, right. I just knew the stock. You just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I could look through the finder, and when I got to a certain exposure on the ground glass, I knew that was, that was it. And so it was great. It was yeah. simple. Simple compared to digital. That's and true. the images look great. They mm-hmm. look like film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which everyone, it's funny that we've gone to the digital age and you see a bunch of YouTube tutorials of like how to make your movie look like film. A film look. <laughs> well, you can, by the way, and I get that about digital. You can make digital look like anything. And anybody who pretends otherwise is just wasting their time as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right. Take a 6K imager and you know, you know, you can make it look like 65 millimeter. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. So I, I am not, these days... I am. I'm totally opposite. Uh, film is mm-hmm. a waste of money, <laughs> and it's it's going to end up being a digital capture. Mm-hmm. When I worked in special effects in the motion picture industry, everything was done through the printing process. Mm-hmm. Everything was expo- we used green screen. We used all that, but ultimately, you were doing printing stages because mm-hmm. everything was in film. There was no capture digital, and then the rest of it's digital. So what's the point? So you've got a capture medium that isn't really as accurate or as good as a 6K chip. So why are you doing this and spending all this money except for ego and some kind of supposed glory? I mean, it's just what it is, but mm. that's fine. Yeah. I've been there and done that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Big time. Yeah. 
<laughs> so how did you end up working on the Star Trek movie? I had, I've heard you have many stories from that experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I went to AFI, and it was a revelation to me. I, I was older. I was like 30 when I went to AFI. I was ready. I really, really wanted to learn everything they had, so I just devoured it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was never late for a class. I always showed up and stayed late. And my instructors got that, same way I noticed. And one of them said, hey, he said, you know, the... Uh, the guy who taught camera assisting, because I was a cinematography fellow at right. AFI. So he said, I was the only person who'd show up. Nobody else gave a damn about camera assisting. So he'd sit there. He had a, a Worrell head with an old Mitchell NC camera on it. And I'd go there and I'd talk to him and hear war stories. <laughs> this is the guy, George Dye, who was the camera assistant who saved Gone with the Wind. Oh, wow. They put a jillion cameras on the burning of Atlanta. Do you ever see Gone with the Wind? I have. You remember that scene? I think so. I, I saw it they burned many years Atlanta. ago. They burned Atlanta. Okay. And you'll notice if you watch that scene, mm-hmm. actually the burning of Atlanta is one camera. They put the cameras too close. Oh, no. The fire was too big. Right. All the camera people confronted with death by fire just bailed. Yeah. Except for George Dye who picked up his Technicolor camera, which had to weigh close to 200 pounds, put it on his shoulder and walked it back to where it was safe to film, set the camera up and filmed the burning of Atlanta. And that was the making of his career. Wow. Which went on to become one of the most, the biggest movies ever. Ever. Yeah. And that was the big shot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he got it all by his lonesome. Wow. So... What a person to learn from. <laughs> no, he it's was probably great. the best AC in history. <laughs> well, he was great. And he said afterward, because I paid attention, he said, uh, I'm going to introduce you to Dick Urosich. He might be able to help you out. And that's what I tell my students. It's all about introductions. And mm-hmm. you know, if you impress somebody, they'll take care of you. Urosich was working with Doug Trumbull. Doug Trumbull had been handed Star Trek, the motion picture, because the person who was originally doing the special effects, Robert Abel, had had the movie for six months and had not turned in one usable effect shot. He'd spent the whole time building equipment and testing because Bob Abel was in way over his head. Mm -hmm. He was a commercials director. He directed brilliant commercials, but he was in way over his head. Finally, the producers, realizing what was going on, fired him, gave Doug Trumbull a call. Doug Trumbull had done Brainstorm. Well, hadn't done Brainstorm, I'm sorry. He had actually, basically, the the film that he had finished doing in his shop was probably the best, one of the best effects films ever done. Uh, Blade Runner had come out of his shop. Oh, wow. Okay. And when I was working for Doug Trumbull, when I was introduced to him, I got to see the first answer print in in 70 millimeter of Blade Runner. Oh, man. I wept. That's insane. I wept. Wow. So That's a very exclusive viewing of that movie. Yeah. Wow. So um, Urosich offered me a job mm-hmm. because they offered Trumbull a million bucks to finish the film. Flat, flat feet. He said, I don't do, I don't do a fake. At that time, he was considering himself a director. He was, you know, having worked 2001 with Stanley. He'd kind of done, been there and done that. But for that price, you know, he said, fine, I'll do it. And basically, they had six weeks to do the effects. Gosh. They hired everybody yeah. in Hollywood, mm-hmm. including me. <laughs> you were one of those people. <laughs> well, 
They hired me as basically as a PA. My job was to order up equipment mm-hmm. and materials to be able to do these effect shots. And it was all done 65 millimeter. Uh, so they were moving enormous cameras around on various dollies and motion control systems, mm-hmm. all of it being shot with smoke and amazing stuff that they were doing. And I got to be there for that. And since my job was to order stuff, I would be ordering stuff over the phone all day long to every shop in Hollywood. And gradually people recognized my name. So, Oh, because uh, you, you would say, hey, I'm Joshua Morton with No, they'd, so see, the name, so. they'd see the name on the, uh, on the order. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. So one day, there was, there was no driver available to go down and pick up something from Stuart's screen. So I said, I'll go do it. And it was a small part. So I, and I was driving a motor. I literally got on my motorcycle and drove over <laughs> Stuart's screen, got off my motorcycle, walked in. And I said, I've got to pick up a... Uh, I've got to pick up an order for uh, for Star Trek. And they said, oh, yeah, it's ready right there, sir. He said, they said, I said uh, uh, be sure to tell Mr. Morton. <laughs> you were the messenger for Mr. That, Morton. <laughs> absolutely. And I got, I got to hear myself being talked about as right. this revered figure <laughs> who was bringing them all this business. And I almost <laughs> cracked up. That's Me so on my great. Honda 250 motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. And uh, I worked really hard on it, and and eventually they ended up giving me a screen credit, which was really pretty amazing. At that time, the most expensive expensive motion picture ever made. Oh wow! Yeah, 125 million in 1980 dollars. Right. Which was a lot of dough. Yeah. Now and, 125 is considered a. Yeah, normal. Yeah. <laughs> normal. But uh, that was a big deal at the time. After that, that that got me going in the motion picture industry. That was a union job. And remember, when I took the test to get into the union, which I had to do, Mm -hmm. I was an effects assistant. I was told, don't go for being a production assistant because that's what everybody wants to be. Go for effects assistant. When you've done that kind of internship, that traineeship, you can work on anything. So I worked in effects and I worked with the best in the business. And at one point, I even had the privilege of dropping a 65 millimeter motion picture camera on the stage floor. <laughs> the privilege. The privilege. <laughs> of making a mistake. <laughs> it was the worst day in my life. I didn't know Goodness. any better. They, right. said, they said, look, everybody going out for lunch. I was on stage. One of the groups said, hey, will you move that camera? We got to move some grip gear around. And there was the, the BFC-4, huge 65-millimeter camera, on a cart. And I went over, I pushed the cart, <laughs> and I hadn't pushed the cart six inches when it just Ugh. flopped. Right. Because that camera had no business being on that cart. Oh, I see. But that doesn't matter. Of course, because you were the one that pushed it. I was the one right. who had my hands on it. Right. A camera falling is the worst sound, I think, any filmmaker can try hear. A, try a 100-pound 65-millimeter <laughs> camera yeah. in the deck. One of, four, one of four in existence. Oh, my gosh. You had 25% of those cameras in your hands. <laughs> and dropped it. Oh, so what happens immediately after that? Do you just run away? Because <laughs> that's no, what I would nowhere want to, to do. Run. There's nowhere to run. <laughs> right. Dave Stewart, who's a supervisor of special effects, DP, red-haired Irishman, weighing in at about 300 pounds, <laughs> comes in and looks at what's happened and said, everybody pull out your union cards. I want to see camera local cards right now. Who is the camera local person on this set? Uh, Grip didn't have a camera local card. Right. I was a PA. I didn't have a camera local card. Right. He shook his head. 
said, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, <laughs> being a good Catholic. <laughs> right. But he was so cool. He just picked it up right. and took it over to the shop, the machine shop, and there was kind of like a slightly tweaked corner of the camera that was making the magazine. He took a ball-peen hammer, whacked it <laughs> a couple of times, put the magazine back on, mm -hmm. did a steady test on it, and it worked fine. <laughs> Because it was built like a tank, a yeah, Russian exactly. tank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm sitting there having done this, trying to figure out how I'm going to survive. <laughs> right. Just thinking of what your next job is going to be. So uh, during lunch that day, I went to a silkscreen shop, and I had a, I had a silkscreen black T-shirt that said on the back in big letters, yes, I dropped <laughs> the BFC4. And I wore it for a week. <laughs> I like that. You punished yourself. I didn't know what else to do. I, <laughs> I didn't want people talking about it. Oh, did exactly. you hear it? Do you believe? You know, whatever. Yeah, so just I just said, to... fine, here it is, you know. Yeah. Fire me, whatever you're going to do. Right. And they let it go. They let it go because they knew it wasn't my fault. Right. And they didn't want to trace down who had exactly. left the camera on that tray for Especially me Especially that it up. was like fixable. They were cool. They were mm -hmm. cool and they appreciated the way I handled it because mm -hmm. a lot of what you do is not the mistakes you made, but how you deal with the mistakes you made and, right. and whether you fess up to them on the spot and do whatever you can to right the error you've... Pretending you didn't do it is not the way to go. That'll get you fired. I right. tell that all the time to my students. Screwing up is not... Everybody screws up. Not dealing with it immediately, that's the sin. That'll get you fired. What advice do you have for people who want to make important documentaries in 2019 and beyond? I wouldn't limit the question to documentary. All films are narratives. Right. So what I would say is, regardless of what kind of film you're making, what story do you want to tell? I think that we need to be telling stories in much the same way I started filmmaking. In other words, I'm presenting myself as the only thing I really know, which is my own relationship to narrative and motion picture filmmaking. Mm -hmm which is to make stories that work toward social change. And this can be any kind of movie. This can be anything from a romantic comedy to a noir, super dark, to a horror film. Regardless of genre, I think the important thing is to try to bring about change in our society and in the world. What do you see of the future of the film industry looking like? Because you've witnessed it change very much. I mean, you know, your first things were shot on film. And as you were saying, I could pick up my phone right now and have better quality than cameras, you know, 10 years ago. With all of that change in mind, what do you see as the future? I think there's going to continue to be the high, high end, the franchise comic books, the tentpole productions, and then on exactly the other end, people with their iPhone in their hand. And I think the really important stuff is going to be happening with the people with the iPhone in their hand who really become because of circumstance or personal experience or some kind of opportunity become filmmakers. And that's a kind of magic that happens that's really has to do with the relation person's relationship with their own self. In the same way when I pulled that camera out in New Haven, Connecticut in the winter of nineteen sixty nine and started filming those kids getting on my van and being driven to the breakfast program Something clicked. I just knew at that time, this is it. This is really what it is. The great thing is that they don't have to go through all that to be able to do that. The portal 
is so much wider open. Everybody right. has access to it. And that's good because it makes it incredibly easy. It's bad because there's going to be a lot of garbage out right. there. But for the people who get it, there'll be serious stuff happening. And I think that's great. Yeah. I think it's a hopeful future. I think it's a good thing that's more accessible. I mean, I wouldn't be able to do it <laughs> if it wasn't. So. Well, I think that it's, it's all in the doing. Pick it up and do it. I, I, I tell my students, don't sit here and show me a spec script for NCISLA. You're not going to be able to do it. Right. It's going to be sad. When I see students doing episodic TV, you know, you know, I know I've worked on years of episodic TV. It takes an incredible amount of skill and an entire infrastructure of acting, writing, direction, cinematography, grips to make a half-decent episodic. Mm-hmm. And most episodic is crap anyway. So how are you going to do that here at SCAD? No. Mm-hmm. Make the personal film that you can right. do within your means. Reach inside. Find out what's important to you. Maybe it'll be an event that will happen to you. Maybe it's something out of your youth or of your family of origin or the town you lived in. Here in film school, take this opportunity to make the movie about the thing that's most important to you. And if you do that, then what's going to make that movie work is your connection with the material, not the technical expertise, because the technical expertise is out there available to everybody. It's going to be your narrative that's going to come through. Mm -hmm. So go for that, particularly now, because look at Scorsese. Look at the student films. De Niro and Scorsese started together 100 years ago on an NYU student film, and they've been working together for 60 years, Mm -hmm. basically making the same movie. (laughs) Right, right. I say that because, you know, but basically, he started out with that one statement about youths like himself in New York City's Italian-American culture, which is very rich and very insane, very violent. And he told that little story, and that became the basis for a career. So on the one hand, be loose, don't be uptight, but tell your story and be honest and truthful in the telling. And if it's a good story, people will get it and they want to see more. And all of a sudden, you're a filmmaker. <laughs> perfect. Well, I think that's perfect advice to in this episode on. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I hope you enjoy doing your first podcast ever. Yeah. And um, I know my, my many SCAD film friends were excited that I was doing this interview, and I'm sure they'll be excited to hear it. So Sure. You're welcome. So, Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. 